I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. In five, four, three, two. Welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined by my team of investigative journalists. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And so today we're talking... Yogi couldn't join us. He's meeting with our CIA handler um, and ran a bit long. Uh, so today we're talking about um, uh, Daniel Loeb is a hedge fund billionaire. According to Forbes, he's worth about $2.9 billion as of September 2019. And I'm very much excited about this episode because um, we're joined by uh, a man from a, a research firm publication that we have relied on a lot in the past. Uh, and I'm talking about hedge clippers. Uh, a lot of the episodes we've done, I've relied on research from hedge clippers. And so I'm very thrilled today to be joined by Brad from Hedge Clippers. Hey, hey. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. And uh, I guess for those listeners who are not aware, could you explain what Hedge Clippers is, uh, what it does? Is it a research firm? Am I messing that up already? Uh, so Hedge Clippers is an effort to hold to account the financial industry um, and specifically the hedge fund and private equity folks. Um, it started when a whole bunch of unions and progressive organizations got together and realized that we were all fighting the same people and that uh, we should centralize uh, some information about them because they, you know, uh, the, the hedge fund billionaires, the private equity billionaires, they fund all the politicians that we hate. They, you know, uh, they do all of the, you know, corporate restructuring that results in job loss um, that we oppose. And they get to hide by you know, behind their um, relative anonymity. And so this was an effort to kind of uh, raise their profile and uh, make them known and talked about, just like you guys are doing. Yeah. Well, you're forgetting the most important thing Hedge Clippers does, which is reduce the amount of research time for me from four to two hours <laughs> per episode. Right on. Yeah. Um, and, and I A lot guess... of good backstory on the redhead from Billions, too. <laughs> Well, we might talk about billions a little bit in this episode because Daniel Loeb definitely engages in some billions tactics, uh, you know, not the Paul Giamatti kind. Uh, but uh, I guess I wanted to ask you, Brad, um, because you did suggest we do this episode on Daniel I need Loeb. you to pee on me. <laughs> you did suggest we do this episode on Daniel Loeb, and it was very uh, interesting for me to do some research on him. But I, I wanted to start by asking you, uh, why did you pick Daniel Loeb? What interests you about the guy? Why do, you, why do you think he's fascinating or worth studying or an example of what is wrong with American finance? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, Loeb is interesting because he's an activist investor. Mm -hmm. And I think activist investing is one of the sort of, uh, it's a strategy that hedge funds use. And it's a strategy that's very pernicious. It has a lot of effects that hurt Main Street and help Wall Street, right? So when activists go out and uh, take a position in a company, what they're often trying to do is get that company to give uh, the investors a whole bunch of money that would otherwise be used for their operations, that would otherwise go into, you know, R&D. Um, and basically, they're, you know, 
for short-term profits, they're sapping our country and our economy of its long-term sustainability. Yeah, and, and I think that's a good transition because we should start with also a minor correction because uh, for the podcast, we did this episode on Stephen A. Cohen of SAC Capital. And on the episode, we said hedge funds all either engage in endemic illegal insider trading or lose money. And that was unfair. Uh, they also engage in extortion or pump and dump scams. <laughs> and I think the extortion and pump and dump scams is what we'll really get into when it comes to, to Dan Loeb here. Um but uh, uh, so Dan Loeb, again, he's born 1961. Again, Forbes has him about 2.9 billion net worth. Uh, he runs Third Point LLC is his hedge fund. It's got about 15 billion assets under management. And um, uh, as of uh, 2018, it was it lost 11 percent of its value in 2018 when the S&P 500 lost about 6.5 percent. So he's going through a difficult time now where a lot of people. A lot of people are uh, withdrawing from him and other hedge funds because not only are they not beating the S&P 500, but they charge these uh, uh, ridiculous 2 and 20 fees. So you pay like so much more in fees to a hedge fund just to like lose more money than you would get if you just stuck it in the S&P 500. But I, uh, I guess we can start the biography chronologically and then kind of go through how he uh, uh, has kind of a pernicious effect on the economy generally. Um, and I wanted to start with, uh, my main source was this uh, Vanity Fair profile from 2013. It's called Little Big Man. But I actually preferred um, the uh, the subtitle, which is Dan Loeb Skeletons. Did he hit a young Cuban with his car? The answer, yes. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes. So we'll get to this story. But uh, Dan Loeb was uh, mysteriously detained during a 2003 trip to Cuba. Uh, when he uh, apparently called an associate on the verge of tears and uh, said that he hit a, a Cuban child with, with his car, and nobody knows what happened to that Cuban child. Oh, yeah. So the the benefits of being a billionaire are that uh, even in Cuba, that's yeah. that's pernicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, at least that child has like the best health care available. <laughs> True. To a Cuban child who could get hit by a billionaire's car and then, you know, bribe his way off the island. <laughs> um, but we'll get to that story in just a second. What I, what I found interesting is like, look, Dan Loeb is a, a born rich kid who just got richer. Uh, according to this Vanity Fair profile, he grew up in Santa Monica uh, Canyon, you know, north of Los Angeles. But I found it interesting that his great aunt, his great aunt created the Barbie doll. And with her husband, they found it Mattel incorporate it wow. so he grew up with uh barbie doll money uh and you know his father was a lawyer who also served as interim president of mattel and on the mattel board so his great aunt was just the drunk malibu stacy uh, <laughs> come to life right now his uh his family fortune uh depended on creating a body dysmorphia among an entire <laughs> generation of young american women <laughs> Um, Got that Barbie money. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, um, uh, the Vanity Fair profile kind of goes through. I, I thought it was kind of uh, interesting. His father, Ronald, uh, uh, passed away from Alzheimer's, but he was a partner in this Los Angeles law firm, uh, Ireal and Manella. Uh, he worked there 38 years. Um, he was also general counsel at Williams-Sonoma. Um, but I, uh, I also liked his mother, According to this Vanity Fair profile, uh, she wrote her PhD dissertation on Herman Melville, 
Um, uh, and then quoting from the profile, thanks to a political awakening that started with the civil rights movement, she produced and hosted radio shows, including one about art and institutions, another about, quote, t- contested definitions of fascism, unquote, on KPFK, the Pacifica leftist radio station in Los Angeles. I am deeply anti-racist and continue to be offended by all symptoms of proto-fascism and authoritarian conduct, Sparks says of her free market philosophical leanings which she discusses on her blog cia plant <laughs> but it is like interesting I've been, I've been reading the manson book she's she's cia yes well it is interesting it's like okay so his mom is like some radical uh uh free marketeer who uh attributes that to their anti-racism and anti-authoritarianism cia yes but, you know, that's just the kind of woke household he grows up in. He grows up, you know, certainly upper middle class at the least, if not just straight up rich. I mean, he's able to borrow a, a lot of money to start his company, which we'll get to. But, and, you know, he's kind of inoculated with this, let's say, standard free market Democrat ideology. Uh, and he will be a Democrat up until Obama says mean things about him and the other hedge funders. <laughs> then he's a Trump guy. Yeah. Uh, he, he switches to Romney and... um. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but uh, so just continuing from this profile. See, he, the key thing about being in a hedge fund is you know how to pick the winners. <laughs> just continuing from this Vanity Fair profile here. Uh, like a lot of Southern California kids, Daniel Loeb loves surfing, especially at Third Point, the fabled break in the Surfrider Beach in Malibu. But even then, he wasn't all that laid back. He has claimed he dreamed from an early age about being an investor. I used to write down Third Point <laughs> over and over third point partners third point partners he once recalled and like he gives some speech in 2009 30 pages of it (laughs) he gives some speech in 2009 where he talks about like you know girls here when you had like crushes in high school you used to write down the names of uh, boys you liked in your notebook I was doing that with my hedge fund I was writing third point third point partners in my high school notebook I, I like that one of his teachers like recognized really early on that this kid was going to be like, you know, a financial like hedge fund <laughs> dick and uh, gives him the nickname Milo Munderbender. Right. And I've never read uh, Catch-22. I, I don't know how I escaped uh, middle school without getting assigned <laughs> that one. But, I, you know, apparently this is the person who is like the sort of king of the black market in the book. Mm-hmm. And the teacher's like, oh, yeah, this this kid, this is who you remind me of. <laughs> Just like I wonder if the teacher was like, "Oh man, this kid's kind of a psychopath." Let's start, let's push him towards money and not, you know, keep him away from the frog dissection. He was already of the class. Sec- he was already securitizing lunch money. <laughs> such he was age. like uh, hiring a bodyguard who eventually went and like worked for him at his uh, venture capital fund. So the same person that he hired in I think middle school, uh, Rob Schwartz, to be his bodyguard, he paid him a quarter a day. Uh, eventually went on to work for Loeb at Third Point Ventures. Some some people, when they have crushes, they think of them as their, their future partners in marriage. He saw them as their future partners in business. <laughs> I like to imagine that teacher just like already knew that his fund was invested, was going to invest in the pension and be like down 11% in 2018. <laughs> like, I got to get my digs in early on this kid who's fucking up my retirement. <laughs> But yes, no, like, if you want a summary of Dan Loeb's personality, and we will get to this in just a minute here, but it's like already by middle school, like, kids were just, uh, their fists were magnetically attracted to his face, <laughs> and he's already, like, having to spend the Barbie money, like, hiring security guards. 
Like he hasn't even opened his first fund yet and he already <laughs> needs like a fucking secret service detail to protect him from swirlies. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, like, uh, so Dan Loeb was kind of an asshole rich kid, and, uh, you know, that's reflected in the fact that he had to hire security to keep him from getting bullied. Um, but so he goes to, uh, he goes to college on the West Coast, but apparently he, like, finds it boring, so he transfers to Columbia. Um, he gets an economics degree from Columbia University, and, uh, what, what I found interesting was, um, he, uh, he gets his first job through just straight-up family connections. Uh, so he, he, uh, graduates with an economics degree from Columbia University. Oh, though it is interesting, it should be noted here, they always cite the example of while he was in Columbia, I think he was a, a senior there, uh, he played the stock market with his family's money, and he was at one point up $120,000, but then he invested in all it all in a maker of medical equipment and from the Vanity Fair profile. Uh, but when it reported that some of their uh, anesthesia machines were linked to the deaths of a few patients, he lost everything. He owed his father $7,000, which it took him 10 years to repay. <laughs> Just like... That's when you got to pad out the billionaire biography with a struggle story. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I, uh, I owed my dad seven grand that I flushed <laughs> down the toilet and it was really embarrassing for a while. What are you going to tell me next? He has dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that, that was that was bad. Probably cut that. Right. No, no, no. But that's kind of like the uh, the the fucking um, just the ability to lose that much money on a medical supply company. Like that's just impossible today. <laughs> I like yeah, the seven thousand dollars like won't even let you be seen as a patient by that company. His, his dad was ma- much his, less invest in it. Yeah, his dad was mainly mad that he didn't consult an expert network. Right. Yeah, we talked or about anonymous it. anonymous industry tips. <laughs> just random advice you know, right just, just you want to learn more about the industry right like we should say for like legal purposes uh uh in the stephen cohen episode we talked a lot about hedge fund insider trading uh dan Loeb has never been uh formally accused by the sec or any other body of illegal insider trading but um the fact that he's always hanging out with stephen a cohen going in on investments with stephen a cohen uh doing fundraisers with stephen a cohen it's like yeah, I'm sure he never just said, hey, this stock is a good idea. You want to go in on it with me? You know. He just likes Steve Cohen for his taste in art. Right. <laughs> he likes, we talk, he has the Jeff Koons shark, Steve Cohen does, in oh, formaldehyde. Yeah. Uh, if, if you look at his house on Google Earth, he's got one of those giant, like, uh, I don't know who did it, but the, like, chrome balloon dogs. He has, like, a giant one outside his house. It's, it's obscene. It's just a big sign that says i'm an asshole <laughs> i just uh i hope when the the revolution comes you can like trace the google maps year by year and you just see like his, him impaled on the fucking dog statue <laughs> i don't know if i mentioned this but satire yes <laughs> my uh my girlfriend went to the same art school that um jeff coons went to yeah and he did like a q a there and so she raised her hand or he did like a talk and a q a and at the end she raised her hand and she was like so um would you say for aspiring artists that it's important to uh go into hedge fund managing before you go into art <laughs> how do you take that uh he she said he just kind of uh stuttered a bit and was flustered <laughs> uh actually art art is becoming like a more significant 
object of specul- financial speculation. Oh, absolutely. These days. Right. And like, uh, it's like a whole like wealth management asset asset class. Oh, now. I want the bottom to blow out of that so bad. <laughs> well, we've talked about it on. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of a digression yeah, on the meta. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the meta. But there is like art finance now, and right. it's like like somewhat important pillar of wealth management and it's really also like a, it's a great way of money laundering yeah oh, like yeah, that's too. what yeah. like fucking monet could not have predicted <laughs> is that the global financial criminals would be reliant on his fucking water lilies or whatever the fuck picasso probably did yeah oh but i would like if you were at a q a with jeff coons it'd be like so what are you spending that teacher pension money on <laughs> just like what does that kind of shit buy these days <laughs> Um, but so yeah, so his more self-portraits at blowjobs, <laughs> made by a thousand crying interns. <laughs> All right, but so yes, his big struggle story is he's a fucking rich kid at Columbia University. He loses, he's up one hundred and twenty grand in the stock market. He loses it all, and he owes his dad seven thousand dollars, which takes him ten years to pay back. So that's the struggle. Of, that's Daniel Loeb's struggle, <laughs> as it were. Uh, but so what happens is, according to this book, uh, House of Outrageous Fortune, it kind of goes through after he graduates from Columbia University, he works at a uh, private equity firm called uh, Warburg Pincus for, from 1984 to 1987. Um, and just from House of Outrageous Fortune, he got this job because, quote, his father knew a top executive at Warburg Pincus and a godfather helped him engineer his first trading coup, a $20 million score. Uh, Warburg Pincus is like one of the oldest private trading, equities yeah trading firms on wall street yeah i know i've encountered them before but i can't remember where hmm. uh but yeah so warburg pincus was also a uh they owned an equity stake in mattel and we mentioned his dad was interim president of mattel was on the board of mattel and new executives there who got his son the hookup so it's like this is just the most fucking gilded <laughs> ascent and like the you know i mean not the most so, we've ever reported on forbes but, self-made score Seven. He actually is. I think you actually called it. Oh, I got it. it. I think you actually called it. Let me see. The Forbes. Yes. On Forbes.com, he has a seven out of ten self-made score. I I love that he tried to pass himself off as, like, one of the people that owned, you know, came from the Loeb family that owned Loeb Kuhn, the, like, investment banking house. So he was trying to pass himself off as, like, an old money Loeb, not the, like, you know, Barbie money Loeb. (laughs) Yeah, it's not the cadet branch. Yeah. Just the... uh, Mattel for me. Uh, yeah, the uh, the less ostentatious one. Um, but so... So wait, they had money before Mattel? I don't know. No, I think the family fortune goes back to Mattel, like his great oh, okay. aunt. I mean, like, you know, his, his dad was like a lawyer uh, who had like, and his mom was a PhD, so they were kind of like upper middle class, but like it was their connection to the Mattel fortune that made them like really rich. Oh, okay, because I was starting to think that maybe like his great aunt was more of a um, Wyatt Coke figure. <laughs> who <laughs> just sort of drew a stick figure <laughs> on a piece of paper and like handed it to a designer who invented Barbie. <laughs> that would be like a funny origin story. It was just like the Barbie creator couldn't draw. <laughs> it's just like a they stick figure like, with boobs. <laughs> like, no, you're supposed to put like 20 more pounds on this thing. <laughs> supposed to flesh out. This doesn't look like a real person at all. These, these feet don't work. Shut up. Uh, but so, you know, and so he uh, he works at uh, Warburg Pincus from 1984 to 87. Then he gets a job at Island Records. Uh, he, he apparently, like, uh, runs finance there, and he, like, engineers their sale to, I think it was a Dutch firm or something like that. 
Um, but, you know, he kind of bounces around. He ends up at another uh, hedge fund, uh, Laffer Equity Investors, uh, where he learns, you know, risk arbitrage and this kind of bullshit. He learns about how if you reduce a tax rate to an optimal level, you get more tax revenue. <laughs> Arthur Laffer. <laughs> Laffer Curve. Laffer Curve Investments LLC. Yeah. Curve. Yes. Uh, and so he, um, oh yeah. So, and then uh, he's at, he's doing risk arbitrage. He ends up in 1991. He gets uh, from this Vanity Fair profile, he gets a job as an analyst at the investment bank Jeffries and Co. in Los Angeles. And this is kind of interesting because it's like he says uh, from the Vanity Fair profile, that's when my real trajectory took off, he said. By then he thought I could do this as well as others. And it's interesting what he does at Jeffries and Co. is we've talked about this a fair bit on this podcast is the, uh, Michael Milken a large scale <laughs> fraud explosion where a lot of people in the early 90s made their money picking up the pieces of that where uh, you know uh, just to kind of rehash it quickly uh, the Michael Milken junk bonds he eventually created what has been called uh, I think very convincingly a Ponzi scheme where uh, Milken junk bonds because he had these captured savings and loans and he had these captured insurance companies Milken could say I'm going to raise junk bond financing for X company even if it has like no revenue no uh, you know, conceivable path to profitability whatever he has a captive network that's like yeah we can raise a billion for that overnight and then we'll sell these junk bonds to our captive network so what happens in 91 that all explodes and all of these different like you know before they got involved with milken these viable firms are left holding the bag on this shit and then there's like a bunch of different people particularly leon black we talked about who like made their fortune like going in and being like okay well there's like value here let's go buy up this shit out of bankruptcy and then we have you know ownership of these companies that were valuable that are getting restructured and so that's what uh daniel loeb is doing at jeffries and co is he's like a guy who like uh, looks at uh, uh, Milken junk bonds and uh, tries to find value buying them out of bankruptcy, basically. It's picking peanuts out of shit. Exactly. <laughs> um, but regard, you know, and, and so that's like, that's really what, what brings him up to 1995, which is where he founds Third Point Capital. Uh, With $3 million from friends and family. Yes. <laughs> Got that friends and family money. He's a major beneficiary of friends and family LLC. Uh, he uh, apparently he put in three uh, from the Vanity Fair. He put in three hundred forty thousand of his own money. Uh, he says his mom gave him two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. But yes, three million, uh, almost all of which was from his immediate family, other relatives, and a wealthy friend. <laughs> and he put in three hundred forty thousand, which was about what he uh, what he made during uh, his time on Wall Street. Um, so yeah, he he starts with like three million in startup capital. And it's kind of interesting, like we were talking about before we started recording, his uh, origin story, like how how he operates his firm from 1995 to the year 2000 or so, is um, if you've ever gone on, say, the, uh, the 4chan finance board or uh, any Reddit board about bitcoins, you might see uh, an entire generation of young Daniel Lowe. Sean, you're the only one who does that. <laughs> You might see an entire generation of you a bunch I do of too, actually. Oh, okay. I do too. It's you two and a bunch of like 18-year-old libertarian psychopaths. <laughs> well, you might see like uh, some young uh, entrepreneurial Daniel Loeb Zoomer types who are like, "Yeah, I've got the initial paper initial coin offering <laughs> of Dogcoin and I can demonstrate that this is a fraud. Sell your stakes immediately." <laughs> and it's like 
it's online pump and dump. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daniel Lobe founds his firm in 1995, and this is like right when the internet is taking off. So Daniel Lobe is a pioneer in online pump and dump. He's posting on uh, not only the the Yahoo message boards, but another one like investors something or other. Silicon Valley investors, I think, or something. <laughs> yes. Nice. Yeah. So dot com. Yes. So he like uh, particularly in like 1997. This is his big game. But it's like he founds the firm in 95 and his whole deal up until around 2000 is he's finding like small cap uh, stocks, which is like not a big one. Like you can't mess with any of the the blue chip uh, Fortune 500 companies. Can we can we label him as the, the first PHPBB billionaire? <laughs> Probably can. Yes. But, you know, like if you find a, a company where it's like their market cap is, say, 20 million or, or some like medium to small amount, if you can go on the Internet and get enough people to either believe that they're like about to announce some fucking major earning shoot up or if you're trying to short them get enough people to believe like this is a fraud the fucking u.s attorney is about to indict them you know this shit is going down tomorrow once, sell your stake right now once dan became a part-time moderator of the 4chan <laughs> finance channel he knew like I, okay i can do this that really gave him his confidence yeah. it's interesting like this guy is just extremely online extremely early and like that that theme really does carry throughout like you know until present day he's just really on the internet a lot um and he's some of the stuff definitely goats eat someone oh yeah no and he's got these like he's not doing this under his own name he's got a whole bunch of like little screen names and personas that he uses <laughs> um names like mr pink from oh. reservoir dogs oh, uh <laughs> senior pinchy way which i guess right. is like some kind of slur in spanish i think i might have incur- uh, oh, encountered okay. this guy on a family guy forum <laughs> back in high school he has like he cultivates he doesn't buy fake accounts he like cultivates them himself for years yeah, he's got his own sock yeah puppets. he's like yeah, yeah. all right it's time i gotta burn this one <laughs> in order to dump uh, the initial coin offering well he has burned a few of them there's actually like a precedent setting case about one of these accounts that allegedly is dan Loeb. um so the the senior pinchy way one uh, <laughs> was sued by lisa krinsky um in a case that i think went up to like a circuit court uh ev- eventually the subpoena for information about who this guy was was quashed but it, it's been alleged and i think very credibly that it was dan Loeb. and some of the language here um that's that's involved uh you know obviously it's definitely the the allegation was that it was defamatory. Um, they, you know, he says things like um, these are resolutions allegedly for Jerry Lou Cipher, uh, who is the head of uh, this company SFBC International that uh, he was advising people to short on Yahoo Finance. <laughs> um, I will not tra- trade on inside information gleaned from clinical trials. I will not worship the devil. I will not purchase <laughs> mansions from former fraudsters who ran crooked vitamin companies. I will not. I will reciprocate fellatio, which is spelled wrong, with Lisa, even though she has fat thighs, a fake medical degree, queefs, and poor feminine hygiene. I will not rip people off through crooked sales schemes on television. I will not go bankrupt, which is also spelled wrong, when I can't pay my pay for my mortgage. We're so sorry, Lisa. <laughs> I, it's you know, 
uh, he's just really, it's class act stuff. You can tell he really dug in on the financials. He found the vulnerability <laughs> and he was just going with it. But yeah, like Lisa was an executive at this company and um, he was oh, like, what? right. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, so what I'm saying is like, that's like his resolutions was he's saying like he's, he's mocking this company and saying that's what their executives are doing. Oh, They're yeah, like, yeah. you know, uh, fucking engaged in fraud and uh, all this other shit. Um, and yeah, like he was sued a couple times, like like you mentioned, though, like the the senior pinchy way, the case was thrown out after the court determined that it actually was not liable to say Dreamcast was better than PS1. <laughs> <laughs> All of these posts are correct, actually. <laughs> the the other one that he was sued for was actually pretty funny, too. Um, he... The, the person that he was making fun of was some executive um, of a, a company who was Greek. And uh, the post was something like, you know, it was written to be from this executive. And it was saying, I'm going to retire to my villa, you know, in Greece with uh, some nice grappa and a, a small boy. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, he sued him for basically alleging that uh, he was a pedophile. Um, <laughs> right. He said, like, with a small boy, just like in the old country. Yeah. So he's like talking about Greek people. So now you can find his posts on the Comtown Reddit talking about stuff. <laughs> uh, but Retired yeah, to that temple and little St. James. Right. <laughs> and he gives, so Dan Loeb gives this, uh, like we said, he got sued over these posts a couple times, but he like never had to like disclose that he was the one making them. But he does give this revealing quote to a Bloomberg interview in 2005. Where I am honestly on his side about getting sued over posts. <laughs> Uh, he makes this uh, uh, quote to a Bloomberg interview in 2005 where he says something to the effect of I'm paraphrasing but I can neither confirm nor deny that I am Mr. Pink but I do agree with a lot of the things he says (laughs) (laughs) and I think actually like in 2005 the Bloomberg article goes like Mr. Pink was like still posting and apparently he like linked to an article about Dan Loeb and says like here's a great article on a really brilliant investor (laughs) In in the lawsuit that quashed the subpoena to you know publicly reveal that he was Senior Pinchy Way, the court actually <laughs> puts a quote about you know by Senior Pinchy Way talking about how great Dan Loeb is in the uh, in the, the final brief. Um, so uh, you know tipping the hand a little bit again that this is likely Dan Loeb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it is just kind of interesting where like particularly during the the dot com boom and again the early frontier of the internet. There is something about, uh, well, a pump and dump scam. It's like using the web to pump and dump. Whereas before, you know, it would be like uh, Sopranos guys in a boiler room being like, buy Wabistics. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only stock we sell. We recommend everyone buy Wabistics. But, you know, if if you're on the early frontier of message boards, that was a great usage for them because you had a big audience and you could say, I have inside information on this stock. You need to either buy it or sell it, depending on what your position is. So he actually makes, you know, a decent return doing that from about 95 to 2000 uh, to the point where, um, according to... Uh, he invented at- CNBC. Yes. Uh, according to the Bloomberg profile, uh, by 2000, uh, he starts with like $3 million. Uh, of family money in 95 and by 2000 he's up to about 136 million assets under management so he like makes a decent return doing (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, I don't want to uh, get in trouble by saying illegal, but let's say clearly a pump and dump scam <laughs> all over the Yahoo message boards. A legal pump and dump scam. <laughs> uh, but it, it is interesting. So this is like his his really how he makes his bones. But he transitions into a, a much more uh, public one, where according to this Vanity Fair profile, he uh, uh, meets a hedge fund manager in California named Robert Chapman Jr. And Robert Chapman Jr. pioneers another hedge fund strategy that you'll see a lot that, I mean, is just creating noise in the market where the SEC requires if you buy more than 5% of a company, you have to file what's called a 13D, which is like your intent for the company. And like, you know, you're supposed to like sign an affidavit saying you're not engaged in this in a joint stake with anybody else, which people lie about all the time. Business plan. Shoot John Lennon. (laughs) Yeah, yes, the hedge fund manager, Mark David Chapman. <laughs> it was like, John Lennon stole all my investing ideas. <laughs> John Lennon bought Google stock after I put it on the buy recommendations, and he stole that idea from me. Go on message boards, like, play up the value of investing in John Lennon and then shoot him. Um. But yes, yeah, so Robert Chapman Jr., so his idea, he kind of pioneers this, is they file these public 13Ds with the SEC, but what he starts doing is you attach a letter to these 13Ds, and this letter is like a poison pen letter, where you just write out this letter and you say, uh, the executives of this company don't know what the fuck they're doing, they need to be fired, you can even say they're like engaged in fraud, or they have like really lavish benefits, or they're like, as an investor, they're wasting our money on like, you know, uh, champagne and uh, mm-hmm. fucking tickets to the US Open, or whatever else the case may be. And that This section of the 13D is like hardly ever used, really. Right. Yeah. But, but it, um, yeah. I mean, occasionally, like for activists investors or corporate raiders from the 80s and early 90s would would do this Mm -hmm. yeah and activist investing i think really is kind of like corporate rating like it's just another yeah yeah, yeah. sometimes they're used almost interchangeably yeah it's not exactly the same but yeah 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 carl icon the same the same thing but i think that the person is that robert chapman who kind of really invents like being really like juvenile and nasty and then Loeb just takes that to like fucking perfection right that's his (laughs) thing you know, this guy who, like, uh, made his bones calling people pedophiles on the Yahoo message boards. <laughs> like, once he gets into, like, the true canvas, which is the 13D letters and SEC filings, <laughs> you know, it's it's like Picasso. And that's actually, it's an interesting part. There's uh, no character limit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You mean there are no moderators on the SEC letters? They cannot perma-ban me for this? There are no mods of the SEC. It's an empty office. It's an investor secret. But it is interesting where Dan Loeb's really inflammatory rhetorical style actually serves to benefit him because some of these letters he writes go viral because he's saying such vicious things about the executives. So it has a beneficial effect where, you know, uh, however you go viral, all these different people are seeing these letters and maybe they're like, oh, maybe he's right about X, Y, Z, you know, complain about executives are overpaid or they have no idea what they're doing or they're like, you know, hopelessly losing value that should belong to shareholders, you know? So, it is a strategy where if you can be inflammatory enough, you can uh, get your message out there, even in these obscure SEC filings. Um, 
And uh, just from the Vanity Fair uh, profile, uh, uh, Loeb took the rhetoric in these letters to new levels, uh, and he refined the twist of making withering personal comments about a target company's executives. As a former Third Point employee told uh, journalist Nicholas Stein in 2007, Loeb, quote, believes that if you embarrass a CEO in front of his friends at the club, make him feel like people are talking about it, you can exert change on his company. And again, the entire idea here is he just kind of like, uh, let's say, green mails or blackmails or extorts his way into getting some board seats and being like, you guys need to lay off a bunch of employees. You guys need to do a shareholder buyback. You guys need to like really juice your like next quarter returns. And then once I've made my money, I'm going to dump my position. And I don't really give a shit about the long term health of this company. Most corporate board members, the non-activist ones, are so passive and sedate. Mm-hmm. That when someone like that comes in, they like are, you you think they would like? Well, I don't know. I'm making a shitload of money. I don't really. I probably shouldn't uh, change up what I'm doing here. But actually, they do respond to people like that. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's just like basic, like uh, being brigaded by someone. Someone like Loeb all of a sudden tends to have that effect on these guys. Well, it's interesting. Like, there was an article in, in Naked Capitalism, I'll, I'll get to in a minute here, that kind of talks about some of the regulatory change uh, with regards to corporate raiders. Because what happened, you know, in the 80s, guys like Carl Icahn, they actually did have to spend or at least threaten to spend a lot of money because you had to conceivably be able to buy 51% of the public stock of a company to take it over. But kind of what has happened since uh, these regulatory changes, which, which we'll talk about, is guys like Daniel Loeb, can just buy, you know, 5 or 10% of the company, and then they actually are able to use that to really mm-hmm. threaten changes without even conceivably being able to buy the, the entire company. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot cheaper. Right. So it's than, just, like, trying for, like, a long, protected proxy war to get to 51%. Right. So, like, the management of any given firm is, like, incentivized to just buy them out and make them go away uh, because they don't want to engage in these proxy fights with them. And, you know, I think part of the way that they're able to be so successful in doing that is to present, you know, Loeb and all these other activists will present what they're doing as something that's aligned with the interest of shareholders. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, okay, when, you know, you've got this value that has yet to be unlocked in your company um, and you should, you know, lay off these workers and unlock the, you know, salary that you pay them and put that right into share buybacks or whatever. Um, and that's a good thing for for everyone that owns the company. But in actuality, like often it's not. Um, I think we'll get into some more examples in a little bit. But there are all these times where Loeb has um, pushed for fire sales or other, you know, sort of financial restructurings of companies that end up harming that company in the long run. Yeah, Brad, you were uh, you pointed this out. So the hedge fund like Orwellian speak for laying off workers and Daniel Loeb has used this is he says a company should, quote, rationalize its American investments. They say rationalize for just lay off a bunch of workers to unlock cash streams, you know, right. just just going to uh, rationalize a guy in Ohio into <laughs> walking into a, his garage and starting his car and <laughs> letting it run for 20 minutes. Um, but yeah, no, so it's like you do have these like very uh, disturbing uh, uh, fake jargon for what is destroying like good union jobs, usually union, but just jobs in general in order to like give them their little short term payout. And then once they've done their extortion, they can get out and who gives a shit what happens to the company after. 
in in like the elite democratic crowds that Loeb runs through in these days. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now he's I guess he's uh, he's donating to both parties now, but mm-hmm. um, earlier in his career. Um, that really speaks to them like as part of their neoliberal ideology of like viewing Dan as like an aspect of the market basically correcting itself for inefficiencies. So the market can basically regulate itself. Right. I mean, it is something where uh, there were a few different regulations that allowed shareholders like or activist investors, unquote, like Dan Loeb to exert such a disproportionate influence influence but one of them was a 1995 law signed by bill clinton so it's like the democratic party decision under bill clinton to kind of play nice with wall street had just really horrific effects for a variety of reasons but that's you know kind (laughs) kind of why a guy like dan loeb at least until 2012 can consider himself a democrat well you know undermining unions and really just uh uh not really providing any benefit whatsoever to the actual workers in a in a company um, but, oh, I did like one other uh, quote um, from this Vanity Fair just about like kind of the poison pen letters he would write. So he tried to get into this company called Sal- uh, Salton, which uh, S-A-L-T-O-N. They're the people who make the George Foreman grills. He starts off with this big letter about how like my horror when I saw the, your executives at the U.S. Open hanging out with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen using my money as an investor to, like, you know, do all this bullshit. And, you know, just all this kind of inflammatory stuff. But uh, in that particular case, it didn't... An Ali grill would never have done this. <laughs> uh, in that particular case, it doesn't actually work. And so he exits the position, but he's just, like, such a fucking poster, like, such a bitter <laughs> asshole that he can't help but write another thing as he exits his position at a loss. And he says, quote, The final decision to exit the position was not based on your incompetence, arrogance, and innumerable shortcomings alone. It was my conclusion that the company's board is governed by a toothless crew of cronies or pathetically weak individuals who I can only conclude are in way over their heads and unable to take appropriate action. Dear Richard. (laughs) Just like... Just the... The kind of guy who, like, uh, either gets into, like, hedge funds or posts on podcast reddits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, like, he's got all this vitriol, right? And that's, like, a through line throughout his entire career. But he's also this, like, big yoga guy. And, right. Yeah. There's this portrayal of him in this article uh, in New York Magazine um, that apparently just drives him crazy. He's not named uh, the, the the character of Dan Loeb is given the pseudonym Mr. Hedge Fund, um, but he's it's you know been credibly alleged that it's him uh, several times, including in the Vanity Fair article, um, and it's just absolutely insane like he's really into this um this yoga stuff he's into surfing he's into like all this zen shit he's got a yacht that's named after some uh buddhist principle um and the quotes in this new york magazine article are just crazy where he's talking about um he went to uh see his guru for a month and the fund was up. The fund was up eight percent for the month. I was there. He told me a whole month with the guru. My shit is so on right now, and it's it's just like how it has do nothing you to do with me not this? being in the office for a month. Yeah, making no. decisions. <laughs> like he he says, there's another quote where he's like, "There are many paths to happiness." This is you know him telling uh, Vanessa uh, Greer 
Jurditas. I don't know how to say the last name. Right. Um, you know, there are many paths to happiness. Don't worry, we only roast Sean for that. (laughs) (laughs) There are many paths to happiness, but only yoga is the true one. From some fucking billionaire. Can you imagine if you're like a reporter, like scraping by, you know, whatever, and like (laughs) you're at somebody's like Southampton mansion and they're like, there are many paths to happiness, but let me tell you, it's yoga. That's the true one. Yeah, in that same article, he like the reporter sees him at a party or something, and he she asks him, "Do I know you from somewhere?" And he says, La- "Yeah, we slept together," which wasn't true, but it's just like the kind of uh, thing that a guy who's five foot nine says, <laughs> just like overcompensating. Yeah, I fucked you. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got another quote: "Going around India with a begging bowl is the easy way out." Of course, <laughs> it's it's an excuse for not doing anything with your life, and that's not my style. Um, Mr. He- then the, the article goes on. Mr. Hedge Fund style has more to do with winning. Companies are short. Management's trying to defraud us, and I'm like Rambo in my office, headset on, three computers in front of me, mowing them all down. Yoga is all about focus and perfect aim. <laughs> didn't didn't this guy get a? Yeah, he definitely would have been a school shooter. Yeah, if, like he wasn't pointed towards hedge funds. I swear, this guy got arrested at the end of the movie Boiler Room. <laughs> It's like every villain from an Oliver Stone movie. But, you know, I mean, this is like just the kind of fucking mentality it breeds where it's like, yeah, going around and begging in India is the easy way out uh, for all those people who had the option to be born into the uh, Barbie Dreamhouse fortune. Can we can we safely say uh, without getting sued that he killed Willem Dafoe in Platoon? Well, I don't know. Was William Defoe a seven-year-old Cuban child? <laughs> He's got range. Uh, so the the uh, the Cuban child story. I just want to give that here, and I'll quote the entire Vanity Fair two paragraphs on it. In March 2002, there was a strange blip in Loeb's biography when he traveled to Cuba with his friend Alexander von uh, Furstenberg, son of designer uh, Diana von Furstenberg, a Vanity Fair contributor, for what was supposed to be a long weekend. Things unexpectedly took a dark turn, and according to a lawsuit later filed by a former third point analyst who accused Loeb of Loeb of breach of contract, among other things, quote, Cuban authorities had refused to allow him to leave, unquote. Asked what happened in Cuba, Loeb told me earlier this year uh, that he had been involved in a car accident, stuck around for a couple more weeks, had a legal hearing, and everything turned out fine. But, according to Chapman, the other hedge fund guy we mentioned earlier, a desperate and sobbing Loeb had called him from Cuba, where he was confined to his hotel after the accident. I remember how scared Dan Dan sounded when describing the incident involving his hitting a local Cuban kid with his car, recalls Chapman. I truly felt sorry for him when he told me he had found himself unable to leave the country, curled up in a ball on the floor of his room crying, promising God that he'd do anything if the almighty got him out of this predicament it wasn't as if dan had done it on purpose and who really knows what ended up happening to the kid wow poor dan Loeb. yes so going back to the thing about him not being at his fund for a month and that you know putting the fund up for up eight percent there's actually you know related to this particular incident there's some truth to that so there's this book about the house that he lives in in central park west and sort of the various characters in that house and the the chapter on Loeb 
mentions that he was um, detained for seven weeks in Cuba. And while he was there, uh, his fund had this provision called a key man provision, where if the like person who's running the fund is not available and can't be reached, the fund liquidates. And it just so happened that when they invoked the key man provision at third point, according to the sources quoted in House of Outrageous Fortune, um, he made a lot of money as a result, is a direct <laughs> quote. Um, it, apparently, uh, it coincided with a, his absence coincided uh, a, with a steep drop in the stock market, and third point ended up uh, benefiting from Dan Loeb uh, sitting in a hotel room under what I guess would be hotel arrest. Yeah. <laughs> and like presumably he paid some fucking money to somebody to get out of the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I know there's like uh, uh, leftist uh, SoundCloud commenters who get mad if you criticize the Cuban model of socialism. But I just want to go on record and say the fact that the government decided to not summarily execute Dan Loeb was a <laughs> disgraceful abandonment of socialist principles. And I would argue an abandonment of socialism itself. Well, Fidel wasn't a true communist. Uh, <laughs> it was more of his brother and Che who. Yes. And so I, maybe Fidel was. I falling, guess you won't have to lick that old... bowl. Yeah. <laughs> That's when we know uh, uh, Castro truly abandoned communism for state capitalism was when they <laughs> let Dan Loeb leave the country. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, you know, that's just kind of like a weird story. And if you ever see Dan Loeb or if he ever gets on Twitter, make sure to tweet that of him. <laughs> just, <laughs> just what happened to the Cuban child? Because we'd all like to know, because that's the end of the story. There's some Cuban kid and we have no idea if he's alive or dead or what happened. Wait, he's an obsessive poster and he's not on Twitter? That's true. Uh, he, he was on Twitter. He, uh, uh, yeah, he had a pretty locked down account. He would delete his tweets every week. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so he's on an alt now. Right. Probably. He's, yeah. He's one of the, he's like Pope hat or something. <laughs> he switched from Twitter to AshleyMadison.com <laughs> and that, that really took care of his posting needs. <laughs> I, I actually really love his excuse. So, so Dan Loeb did get caught on Ashley Madison. Uh, Gawker published this thing about how he had a profile on Ashley Madison and, um, you know, they, he was looking for discrete fun with a nine or a 10 Loeb you know, married in 2004. Yeah. <laughs> Loeb was married in 2004 to his, uh, his yoga instructor. Um, and this was, you know, several years later that he goes and creates the account. And in response, um, to inquiries from Gawker about this, uh, this is the, the email from his PR rep as my, uh, family, friends, and business colleagues know I'm a prolific web surfer. Did I visit this site to see what it was all about? Absolutely. Years ago, <laughs> at the time, I was invested in Yahoo and IAC. <laughs> I was endlessly curious about apps and websites. Did I ever engage uh, or meet with anyone through this site? Never. That was I never didn't reply. To that was never my intention, as evidenced by the fact that I never provided a credit card or set up an account. <laughs> um, and the the site goes the the Gawker uh, you know article goes on to to mention that that's a pretty plausible excuse, um, except for the fact that he went back and checked his private messages, which is one of the fields that was captured in like leaked data. Um, as you know, recently as December 9th, 2013. Uh, so yeah, it kind of caught him in a lie there. 
I do like that his excuse for having an Ashley Madison account was like, no, no, you don't understand. I was just using this to engage in illegal pump and dump posting. <laughs> I was doing equity research. Yeah. Is it Ashley Mess- Madison? Messaging random women like this stock is fucking yeah. shit. Yeah. Looking for the a management, nine or 10. The management doesn't know what they're doing. Looking for a nine or 10 ready for some stock tips. So after this article came out, I went and downloaded the actual Ashley Madison like nice. <laughs> thing to see if I could find his info in there for research purposes, right? For, yeah, for research purposes. <laughs> like, and it's so it's you know giant database, and if you scroll through it, you can find the discrete fund with nine or ten like as one of the fields, and uh, the account that he's using has the name of. It, the the screen name that he uses is the same as one of the characters in Catch Twenty Two. It's not Milo My, Minderbender, Minderbender. It's Yosarian. Uh, but he like I just think it's funny that like this guy's you know through line whatever his psychology <laughs> is like so simple that like he's pulling back to that same fucking book <laughs> from like middle school or whatever that everyone's already pegged him with to like <laughs> pluck another screen name out. Right, and you were saying he's on fling.com too? or Yeah, if you search on, on fling.com with that email address, there's fling.com, which is like Ashley Madison, also got leaked, and there's a fling.com account um, also, yeah, with the same email address that he used for Ashley Madison. Also looking for 9 or 10s or 8s as well? Uh, it actually doesn't say, but presumably he was also endlessly curious about the app and website, fling.com. Looking for 9s or 10s on the self-made score. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, Fling.com is a website where married men can dis- discreetly find supermodels and urge them to buy Wobistic stock. <laughs> uh, but yes, so uh, Dan Loeb, uh, probably not a faithful husband by all accounts, but you know, when you kill a Cuban mm-hmm. kid with your car, it's <laughs> everybody copes with that differently. <laughs> uh, what are my favorite... I can't like... get off with my wife anymore. <laughs> It was like, yeah, it's too much intensity. He got <laughs> he got way too hard murdering that child. <laughs> Allegedly. Satire. <laughs> Actually, no, I sue me, Dan Lobe. I want to know what happened to that Cuban kid. <laughs> I will bankrupt myself with legal fees just to find out in discovery what the fuck happened to that Cuban child. Uh, one of my favorite like sort of gawker stories that's ever come out about Loeb is this thing where it's kind of like a blind item or like a pseudo blind item. They've got like his history as a person and then it ends with married, you know, his wife in 2004. Um, and the, the article's about him flying around a couple of like young, pretty bloggers in his jet from Davos back to uh, New York City. They posted pictures of themselves flying in the jet, which had a, a tail number on it. Um, and so the Gawker staff were able to go and look up who that plane actually belonged to and found out it was Dan Loeb. It's pretty uh, dangerous to take those pictures in flight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, after Gawker reaches out to the two bloggers, um, the, one of them removed the photos from her blog. Uh, and so, you know, the implication here, I think, is pretty clear that, you know, maybe for whatever reason, she didn't want people knowing that she was flying with Dan Lowe back from Davos. Damn, I can't believe something so horrible would occur at Davos. <laughs> or in a private jet. <laughs> well, so something I wanted to, to go back to is, uh, you know, we'll talk about 
the 2008 crisis briefly, and we'll talk about um, uh, kind of what Dan Loeb has done to some of these companies that he's been an activist uh, investor in. Um, But uh, uh, something you said, Brad, before we started recording is like, uh, once you get to a certain level, like uh, as, say, a hedge fund, it's almost like the path is kind of gilded for you. So, you know, we mentioned like he's just kind of shorting or just kind of pumping and dumping small cap stocks up from 95 to 2000. But by like 2005, he's like really an established investor and he's uh, been able to uh, juice his returns enough to like point to years where he beat the S&P 500 and then, you know, get some pension money or institutional money and this kind of stuff. And then it's like once you're there and, you know, we talked about this on the Stephen Cohen episode, you're able to get Goldman Sachs or whoever else to have you be a, a first call client. So you're like, I mean, you're playing a rigged game. I'm glad I, these are the type of people who are allowed to invest people's pension money. Um, but is that a, a fair description of what you said? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I, I firmly believe that you can't like using your own sort of skill and acumen beat the market consistently over time. Mm-hmm. And some people get lucky, right? Like you have people who have, you know, like if this was flipping coins and if you got ahead, that's, you know, you, you beat the S&P that year. And if you got a tails, you know, you didn't. There are people that are going are gonna to flip heads eight times in a row if you've got thousands of people flipping coins until they, you know, they bust out. Um, but when you're an activist investor, you basically get, you know, once you've established your track record, you kind of get to be right or successful forever, right? Because what you're doing isn't about, you know, really an analysis of the fundamentals of the company or looking for some kind of like, discrepancy in valuation that you can exploit what you're you're doing is kind of like looking for a company that can be bullied by the public pressure that you put on it to take an action that benefits you financially and as you get more of a reputation people are going to kind of defer to your past success um and they're going to be afraid of what what can happen if they mess with you and mm-hmm. so i think what Loeb and some of these other activists have been able to do by being successful early on they've kind of like ossified their like ability to be successful in every new endeavor, right? They're like, anytime they go out and file one of these letters, they're going to be taken much more seriously than if it's some young upstart. Mm -hmm. It should be noted that he underperformed the S&P last year. So some of the magic is wearing off, but certainly those years where he is beating the S&P, like, again, he's never credibly been accused of insider trading by the SEC, but it's like, it's just so endemic in the hedge fund world. And then the other part of it is just green mail, just blackmailing uh, various companies and being like, hey, lay off workers, juice your quarterly returns, uh, fucking do a shareholder buyback, and then give me some money and I'll get out and stop, you know, fucking with your ability to run the company. I mean, it's shooting fish in a barrel once you're an established hedge fund, you know? So, so what is the kind of definition of activist investor? Because I've always, I hear that term a lot, but I'm not quite sure what it means. That's a good question. So I, I'm not sure the, like this is a precise definition, but the way sort of I hear it used is it's an investor who has some outcome in mind for a change in management or a change in corporate structure of the company when they take an, when they take a position with the company, right? And that could okay. be, I guess, long or short. You could be a short activist um, like Muddy Waters and you know, you're going to go and take a, a short position on a company and then publish research about why you think that company is a fraud. Or you could be a long activist um, like Loeb often is and you're, you know, 
taking a long position, you're, you're buying shares in the company, and then you're saying, here's how the company can make changes that I support as a large shareholder now that I believe will return more money, you know, unlock value for shareholders. And these are, you know, as we've uh, talked about, often kind of short-termist things that might benefit the shareholders sort of immediately, but are going to, you know, maybe do so to the long-term, you know, to the detriment of the long-term viability of the company. Like, I, I think it would be, you know, as an activist, I think it would be in your best interest to cut all R&D and do a full shareholder buyback. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's certainly not like you should get out of, like, uh, buying, you know, stuff that children made in sweatshops. You know, right, overseas. right. It's not that kind of activist. When, when we covered Ackman, he was the opposite He's a, a activist short seller, right? Against Herbal Life, was it? Yeah, Herbal, yeah, Herbal Life, Life, which like uh, we don't really have time to get into. But Dan Loeb was on the other side of that trade. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. There, there was like a famous feud between them, and uh, apparently somebody saw them at a party, and uh, um, Ackman went up to Dan Loeb and said, uh, "Why'd you do that, man? You didn't, you didn't have to do that." Because <laughs> he like apparently Loeb would also post on his Bloomberg terminal like. Uh, because Carl Icahn was was short squeezing Bill Ackman and Lowe posted something on his Bloomberg terminal terminal about like wait they have a message board on there yes yeah uh, he posted oh, something shit. on his Bloomberg terminal about like uh, Uncle Carl has like something going up Ackman's behind or uh, new new Herbalife product uh, Herbalife oh. enema administered by Uncle Carl right <laughs> so he's saying like Uncle Carl is giving Bill Ackman an enema and it's just like you know like he didn't even make that much money on it it was just like being an asshole to another billionaire because that's his personality. I didn't know that Bloomberg was a mod. <laughs> Bloomberg actually has like a, a version of Craigslist that's only available from a Bloomberg terminal. And oh, you should check that yeah. shit out. It's insane. You're just like, Those... if you want to get a used Maserati. Yeah, no, if you really want to like gin up some like pretty <laughs> fucking serious class hatred, like just read off the listings. It's, you know, those it's terminals, insane. those terminals, um, you know, even just one costs like. Upwards of ten thousand dollars. I was gonna say, let's get a sponsor and just have one Bloomberg should we, oh, terminal. We should buy just a single Bloomberg yeah. terminal and then shit post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ad is <laughs> like you don't even do any trades, <laughs> and then we'll play like um, Space Invaders on it with their inverted color scheme. <laughs> the 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 ad for the Maserati is like barely used, less than a thousand miles. Previous owner tried to testify in the Epstein trial. <laughs> Never been in an accident involving a Cuban child. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so what I wanted to do with the time we have left here is uh, from the Vanity Fair, it is interesting, like uh, Dan Loeb kind of got in trouble when he was trying to solicit uh, investment from the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, you know, of course, these pension funds invest in hedge funds and private equity, which uh, we've talked about before, is like really sowing the seeds of their own destruction in a lot of cases. Um, but so at the same time, he was trying to solicit their uh, $800 billion pension fund to like put some money to be managed by him. He was also uh, an enthusiastic supporter and board member of Students First, a national organization that advocates, among other things, replacing teachers' defined benefit pension plans with defined contribution plans. So so while he's like trying to get this pension money, he's also being like, we have to destroy their pensions. <laughs> and like, of course, you know, um, defined contribution is great for Wall Street because, you know, then uh, teachers don't know how much they're going to get out. So they yeah. have incentive to put even more of their paycheck in. But and they let do know how much in fees that their right. pension manager will have to pay. Right. To and, Wall Street. Mm hmm. 
And, you know, so it is just something where, like, he was kind of confronted about this. Oh, and he was, like, such an asshole where uh, AFT asked him, like, hey, could we have a meeting about how you're, like, funding and, like, advocating organizations trying to destroy our pension? And he was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then, like, just to be a total dick, uh, we talked about on the episode with Freddie DeBauer, uh, um, DeBoer, uh, Success Academy Charter Schools in New York City. So he was originally going to make a, uh, Dan Loeb was originally going to make a $2 million donation to Success Academy Charter Schools. But then after American Federation of Teachers called him out, he made a $3 million donation to Success Academy Charter Schools. Uh, so he's just kind of a petty asshole. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. And like, at least in that particular scenario, uh, that particular pension fund uh, avoided him, uh, which is a good thing, though. He does have other pension investments, which I think is a big mistake because not only are they like underperforming the S&P, but his entire strategy when he does beat the S&P is terrible for worker pensions and unions and workers in general. Um <clears throat> And so uh, with the time we have left, I wanted to talk about the 2008 crash because it's interesting, like Dan Loeb gives this speech in 2009. It's on YouTube. uh, And he talks about like, yeah, my firm almost went bankrupt in 2008. You know, I thought we were going to get wiped out, but I just kind of barreled down and I made the right investments and I bet on the government bailout. And it's like just the total lack of self-awareness where it's like every billionaire that's around today, particularly the financial ones, the only reason they kept their position is because in 2008 and 9 the federal government turned on a fucking fire hose of public money sprayed all over the place you know like dan loeb would not be a billionaire if the obama administration and the bush administration didn't bail him out and uh, you know of course that goes to the federal reserve quantitative easing all these other trillions of dollars but for dan loeb it particularly goes to the auto bailout because uh the bush and obama auto bailout um Dan Loeb was an investment uh, investor in Chrysler. We talked about that on the Stephen Feinberg episode. Chrysler was like a huge beneficiary of uh, Bush and Obama, like funneling billions of dollars. But he was also an investor in a company called Delphi. Um, we talked about this on the Paul Singer episode. Uh, Paul Singer was a guy who, uh, along with Dan Loeb and others, they bought up Delphi, which like provided um uh supply uh parts it manufactured parts that were needed for gm and chrysler and they essentially extorted the government where they're like you and need- they would get a 12 year old girl <laughs> high on volcanic gases until she started hallucinating um but yeah so they would say to the federal government like you want to bail out the autos you got to go through us first and we'll like just green mail you into just buying us off and greg palace writes an article in the nation in 2012 that goes through how mitt romney benefited from this but he also talks about dan loeb's dan loeb's gains as of 2012 on this one deal where billions of dollars in federal tax money were spent uh with 390 million dollars so it's like how is dan loeb a billionaire because the federal government sprayed money all over him you know like and he still like has the nerve to after obama saves his fucking ass because obama at least rhetorically kind of attacked private equity and hedge funds in 2012 loeb saw this as such a betrayal that he's like i am you know this guy hates free enterprise and america and all this i'm gonna fundraise for mitt romney um yes and uh it's true obama's rhetoric did uh resonate with dumb people (laughs) 
so just according to this article in Greg Palace, uh, uh, without taking billions in taxpayer bailout funds and slashing worker pensions, the hedge funds investments in Delphi would not have been worth a single dollar, according to calculations by GM and the U.S. Treasury. Altogether, in direct and indirect payments, the government provided these investors, uh, padded these investors' profits handsomely, um, blah, blah, blah. The, uh, the paydays were made possible by a generous donation of $12.9 billion from U.S. taxpayers. And that's not even including the, uh, I think it was $7 billion they put into Chrysler. So, you know, Dan Loeb clears uh, over $300 million on this, which should have been an absolute wipeout of every dollar he put into Delphi and um, mm-hmm. Chrysler. Oh, and uh, one last quote from that article. Uh, third points, Daniel Loeb, whose net worth was $1.3 billion in 2012, owns much to his share in the Delphi windfall. He told his fund's backers this past, past July that Delphi remains an excellent investment because, quote, it has virtually no uh, North American unionized labor and thanks to U.S. taxpayers, quote, significantly smaller pension liabilities than almost all its peers. Because Delphi had 25,000 union workers... All of their union jobs were wiped out in bankruptcy. Uh, Their pensions were also wiped out and assumed by the U.S. federal government, so they got huge haircuts on their pensions. And it's like, I mean, it's fucking horrible. Like, these people, many of them lost everything. Like, uh, Greg Palace talks about various people who are in foreclosure and, you know, can't pay their medical bills because of this. And it's like, guys like Dan Loeb get to say they're fucking self-made free market billionaires because of this fire hose of public money that saved them when the economy went under. Yeah, the pension thing is really gross too, because that's you know another area where they're taking, um, you know, the the pension gets uh, when these companies go through restructuring gets shunted off to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, mm-hmm. and that's a, a public entity. Like, so you and I and you know everyone else paying taxes. I assume you pay taxes on podcasts, but I don't <laughs> want to presume. Um, you know, we're we're gonna uh, have to edit this out in case <laughs> somebody from the U.S. government listens. You know, we're Who's all, not our handler like on the hook for this, right? And he gets to, you know, invest in this company as it's going through restructuring and, and, and make a killing. Uh, and it's it's just, it's gross. Yeah. And, um, you know, so just uh, the story with Delphi, as we again mentioned, 25,000 unionized workers, uh, they instead shifted production overseas. So uh, most of Delphi's jobs were sent to um, uh, China. Uh, Delphi now produces the parts used by General Motors and other automakers, uh, particularly in China. Uh, Delphi dropped from 25,000 union workers to 5,000 domestic workers who are now non-unionized. And uh, yeah, so that's the story of how Daniel Loeb is a billionaire. Um, But I guess with the time we have left, I wanted to talk about uh, some of his investments, such as Yahoo and uh, what exactly being an activist investor means for, let's say, everyday people, everyday workers. Wait, he started investing in Yahoo? You always return to the scene of the crime, man. (laughs) (laughs) He bought the mods. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the Yahoo story is is really crazy. Um, So in 2012, uh, Loeb goes in big on Yahoo, which, you know, safe bet, right? Yahoo, this e-commerce giant right right. um in reality i mean the the reason you know with jokes aside that he wanted to kind of go into this is that yahoo um was the 40 percent shareholder of alibaba which is now the world's largest online retailer um and you know this this 
stake, even in 2012, was worth billions and billions of dollars. And Loeb's clever plan to unlock value here was to sell off that stake and return that money to shareholders, um, of which he was the largest, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pretty clear exit strategy here. Um, to get this done, uh, Loeb relies on a tactic that he uses a lot. He gets private investigators and other researchers to go dig up uh, dirt on the current CEO, find out that he didn't have a degree in online or whatever he said he had a degree <laughs> in. Um, and they throw him out and replace him with Marissa Mayer. Do you guys remember Marissa Mayer? Yep. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She also bought Tumblr and then banned the porn, which destroyed the value of Tumblr. Monster. Yeah. Bought Tumblr for, for $1.1 billion. I think it was later sold for less than $3 billion by Verizon. <laughs> to the creator of WordPress. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that right. guy had enough money to buy Tumblr. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind so of much insane. value unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> Jettisoned. But you know, so they they engineer the sale, right? Like they, you know, he gets board seats, you know, buys this position, throws out the CEO, gets Marissa Mayer in, and engineers the sale of half of that stake in Alibaba um, for billions of dollars, right? But they're leaving billions of dollars on the table. So in in 2017, Yahoo um, eventually gets acquired by um, by Verizon, and Verizon eventually spins off the stake in um, Alibaba to a separate company. A separate public company called Altaba. And when Altaba goes out of business, I think in in 2018 or 2019, the 11% of Alibaba that they owned was worth over $40 billion. So, you know, Loeb engineers this quick, you know, kind of pump and dump kind of thing. (laughs) He makes a ton of money off of it. I forget Mm -hmm. exactly how much he made. But, um, you know, he exits pretty quickly in 2013. And then he leaves Marissa Mayer to clean up the mess of Yahoo, which eventually was sold for like five ish billion dollars to Verizon in 2017. Right. Yeah, according to TechCrunch, uh so he got Alibaba to, or so he got Yahoo to sell their half of their stake uh in Alibaba. They sell half their stake in 2012 for $13 a share. Uh just 2 years later, Alibaba went public. Uh shares were $68 at the bell. Uh and then today, I believe the article is 2019 or 2018, they are worth around $181. So it is just, I mean, it's asset stripping. That's a good way to describe it where he goes into Yahoo and it's like, "Okay, you have these shares that uh I can get a payday if you just unload at fire sale prices right now." But of course for the long-term help of the health of the company it would be way smarter if they just didn't fucking asset strip themselves it's you like, know come on we'll just get another season of community <laughs> and there were like at least two thousand layoffs at yahoo mm-hmm. when he took over he, he he got the mod who banned him for fi- saying the n-word <laughs> fire <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, he he called those two thousand layoffs like uh, he said he was disappointed in them that they mm. weren't going far enough. Um, mm. So you know, real empathetic Yogi <laughs> Damo. Mm. Um, and uh, just like another company is, so he was involved in um, uh, an interesting case, uh, which is like the merger of Dupont and Dow Chemical. They're like it's kind of confusing where they like merge these two and now they're going to split these two again. But uh, the Joseph Stef- uh, Di Stefano writes in the Philadelphia Inquirer this year, and he talks about what exactly has happened because this first took place in 2015, and it's been kind of like a giant train wreck all the way up to today. But uh, according to Joseph Di Stefano, uh, Dow Chemical and Dupont have 
since this merger destroyed 18,000 jobs. Uh, their research expenditure is down 40%. Their capital expenditure is down 33%. Hell yeah, dude. Uh, since 2014, both companies have spent over $3 billion in shareholder buybacks. So, you know, trying to pay off guys like Dan Loeb. Uh, but even despite all of that, the companies have lost more than $40 billion in value since going into this thing. And it's just kind of a funny story where Dan Loeb, uh, th- th- I think the other hedge fund he went in on this with, they like they were smart enough to just fucking smash and grab, you know, get the fuck out. But he actually like said he stayed in and he said, I expect the value to rise 50%. And he's absolutely like, I mean, it would be funny if, you know, of course, these 18,000 workers weren't out of a fucking job. But mm-hmm. he uh, said that uh, this is now one of his, quote, top five losers because he's just been fucking hosed on this. And it's like, yeah, this is what happens when you get high on your own <laughs> supply. You have like a smash and grab financial strategy and you convince yourself that you're actually unlocking value and you stay in instead of getting the fuck out. And now your hedge fund is down 11% on the year because of your idiot investments. Owned. Yeah, you'd have to completely retool your your investing philosophy, mm-hmm. I guess, in order to try and make something like that work. You'd have to become... Warren Buffett and just become an insane person who goes to McDonald's and pays like three fifty and change every day for his uh for his breakfast. And like so Jang Sup Shin writing in Naked Capitalism, and I'll probably link this article, uh, she kind of describes she's an economist and she describes these various regulatory changes that have allowed um, activist investors like Dan Lowe, who I believe only had like two percent in DuPont and Dow Chemical, but by working with this other shareholder and by like working with um, institutional investors who like they convince institutional investors to allow them to access proxies for them and these other kinds of things. And I'll, she cites two other regulatory changes, but she does cite this 1995 law. Um, uh, she says a third set of regulatory changes which allowed hedge fund activists to gain even more power followed from the 1996 National Securities Markets Improvement Act, part of the financial market deregulation that took place during the Clinton administration. Uh, NS. MIA effectively allowed hedge funds to pool unlimited financial resources from institutional investors without regulations requiring disclosure of their structure or prohibiting overly speculative investments. This threw uh, the door wide open to co-investments between activist hedge funds and institutional investors who put their money into the hedge funds as, quote, an alternative investment. And she cites the examples of uh, the California Teachers Retirement uh, System cooperating uh, in this campaign against DuPont from the beginning, uh, co-signing a letter supporting the hedge funds' demands. So what kind of happens is these fucking hedge fund, or sorry, these pension funds that invest in the hedge funds say, "Yeah, we want to get in on some of this green mail of destroying a company. Those aren't our pensions. We don't care." So the law allows them to do that, and it is just something where she makes the point that because of these that and other regulatory changes uh, there's been an increased incidence of predatory value extraction in the u.s economy for more than a decade major public corporations have routinely dispersed to shareholders nearly all of their profits and often sums equivalent to more than their profits in the form of stock buybacks dividends and deferred taxes while investing less for the future and undertaking restructuring simply for the sake of reducing costs laying people off simply for the sake of reducing their or juicing their quarterly returns so that Dan Loeb's of the world can profit. Yeah. Got to get that money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, yeah, and so she also makes the point that, you know, management is just scared of these hedge funds and their mantra, she quotes someone who says their mantra, management's, is to settle with hedge funds before it gets to a fight over control of the company. And so, you know, we could go through all the different things, you know, uh, we're already a little bit at the time here, but, uh, you know, I just want to mention Dan Loeb is also engaged in kind of some some shady tax shit uh, with like a reinsurance company. Uh, that you can check out Hedge Clippers if you want to know a little bit more about like what they're doing with reinsurance and kind of tax avoidance there. Uh, but I did want to cite, uh, just in case you think Dan Loeb and his yoga have uh, allowed him to grow up, according to Chalkbeat.com, uh, they compiled uh, all of the various racist statements Dan Loeb has made on his personal Facebook page. Yeah. So one from 2016. Again, this is not like a fucking shit poster on the Yahoo boards in the 90s. This is a grown man billionaire writing in 2016. He says this on his personal Facebook page. Quote, if you truly believe that education is the dividing line, and I concur, then you must recognize her and take up the fight against the teachers union, the biggest single force standing in the way of quality education and an organization that has, that has done more to perpetuate poverty and discriminate against people of color than the KKK. So he is saying the teachers unions have done more to damage people of color than the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Dan Loeb's Facebook is phenomenal. You should check it out. Uh, he's also like a like a big gun guy now, and his um his like Facebook cover photo for a long time was him like prone with this like sniper rifle like in like camo gear and shit. Um, That's a weird combo. He's also like a a yogini Buddhist person who he, loves guns. He's an enigma wrapped in. You know. <laughs> huh. Yeah. No. And so, you know, and again, we don't really have time to get into it, but uh, Fairfax was a Canadian insurance company and they sued Dan Loeb and Stephen A. Cohen and others for essentially engaging in a harassment campaign where the other part of like hedge fund pump and dump is once you're like an institution like SAC Capital or Third Point or whatever else, you're like you're so watched by, you know, Bloomberg and CNBC that if you say a company is like a fraud or is, you know, you should be short this company, that message will get amplified a million times. So just by saying it, you can destroy a company. And Fairfax sued them and alleged that they were like uh, calling them at their homes, like harassing, calling the executives at like 2 a.m. and like sending them like weird packages and shit and like stalking them, going through their trash, all sorts of other Just for the listeners, whenever Sean says call, he makes a little phone motion with his <laughs> hands and he ate a banana earlier but that yeah. would have been a much better visual for, yeah. for the those of us in the room but um but yeah no i mean it was just very uh fascinating going through the life of dan Loeb, and i think he really does uh encapsulate a lot of different things that are wrong with the financialization of our economy and you know hopefully we 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 start taking back some of the uh, the power from him but um but Brad, I want to thank you for being here, and I guess thank I want to yeah, I want you. to ask you if if there's any stuff, any major things we didn't really get to in Dan Loeb and and his kind of biography. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty comprehensive. But if there is, it would be on HedgeClippers.org. Yes, nice. And uh, and I shouldn't let you go without asking you because you did send this to us. There is a, a leaked email from one of the Walton heirs. You listened to our episode on the Waltons, and you pointed out one of the Walton heirs has an email where he apparently offered to use his family fortune to bankroll an ayahuasca shaman <laughs> for about two thousand dollars a month. 
Yeah, I, you know, I don't have too much more info <laughs> on this, but um, I forget this kid's name. He's a, a Walton grandson, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and he is the like, you know, <laughs> hopefully the one that takes over the family fortune. I'm really pulling <laughs> for him. Uh, he went to UC Boulder uh, and, you know, looks the part of somebody who would be um, encouraging uh, the Walton Family Foundation or whatever to, to give Daniel Pinch back $2,000 a month. Um, but apparently that's uh, that's what he did. Right. Like Pinchback was one of these 2012 Mayan uh, M Times problems prophecies guys who also like loved psychedelic fucking (laughs) (laughs) experimentation just for the record the mayan thing it's the same thing as when we went from 99 to 2000 it was just a turnover in their calendar (laughs) but but that's what i love is like the way our economy structured now is uh you can get universal basic income if you give acid to one of the walton heirs (laughs) dude you know I think and we and we think we're better than the Aztecs. <laughs> there is a long storied history of philanthropy supporting the leading intellectual minds of every generation. <laughs> and really, why wouldn't Daniel Pinchback be entitled to two thousand dollars a month? For, you know, yeah. We don't need uh we don't need uh Andrew Yang. Just be the fucking connect for like some <laughs> billionaire fail son. And then he'll be on email being like, Yeah, man, the two thousand a month has been wired to your account. You're taken care of. Just fucking get billionaires high. That's like the most profitable strategy. Go of- go with psychedelics, it makes them more su- um more suggestible. <laughs> Optimizing your skill set. Yeah. Um, but uh, Brad from Hedge Clippers, I, I want to thank you here. I know you're not really online, but is there anything you want to uh, plug or advertise to people or encourage them to check out? Just hedgeclippers.org. All right. Check yes. out Hedge Clippers. Uh, they've informed a lot of our research in the past. I'm sure they will in, in the future. And uh, thank you for listening. Check us out on Patreon. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Love you. <laughs>